Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to the Elephant in the Room podcast, the podcast of the Georgetown University College Republicans. We're back to to provide excellent content for the spring 2023 semester in a new season. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our last episode at Conservative 2023 from A to Z after you've, you've listened to this one. And I'm your host, Ian Cruz, and today we have a very special guest joining us today, which is Mike Bartels, the chief advisor to the president and the chairman of the Catholic Caucus of the New York Young Republican Club. So Mike and his friend Vish came to Georgetown to do an event with the Georgetown College Republicans to discuss how conservatives and Republicans can organize in a deep blue city like New York or Washington, D.C., Now, it is my pleasure to welcome Mike to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. I should clarify that when you say chief advisor to the president, uh, I'm the chief advisor to the president of the New York Young Republican Club, not the president, the president of the United States. I I (laughs) do not have a position in that administration, nor am I seeking one. (laughs) Well, let's get right into it then. Sure. So as I mentioned in the intro... Do you see our host an event with the New York Young Republican Club with you and Vish uh, about organizing in a blue city like New York, D.C., insert any other big blue city in the country? How to and how to combat leftist circles, how to combat leftism in those cities to those students who miss that meeting, miss that event. What were the main concepts that you discussed? What are the key takeaways that they should learn from that event? So what we focused on, we focused on two different bits. Uh, Vish focused on movement building and uh, the kind of macro picture of what you need to do as an institution, as an organization to get things moving uh, within official circles. I was focused a little bit more on the construction of micro institutions. And what do I mean by that is the idea of before you have the club, before you have the institution, the company, the think tank, whatever it is. You have an individual group of people that agree on something and they agree on a few basic principles. They don't need to agree on everything. No, they don't. But they need to agree on a few basic ideas and as long as they have that coherence of thought, really what I talked about was building that. Um, And that is different than building something in an ordinary community or a suburban community. If you're in a deep blue city, like to give you an idea, in New York – Democrats outnumber Republicans by about eight to one. So this isn't about, oh, can we get more registration than the other side? Can we get – I mean that that's laughable. What, what the game is in New York is, all right, so they outnumber you so comically that how are you able to make life a little bit more bearable for your colleagues? And now New York's gotten – I mean, in terms of crime, it's gotten worse somehow over the past year. Um, in terms of government overregulation, it's gotten a little bit better. And part of that is because of the constant agitation against the city government uh, by younger conservative groups. And that that is important because at that point, you have to start thinking outside the box. You, you can't just think about, OK, we're going to do traditional politics and we're going to elect our guy and we're going to – because you can't. You're not going to in in that setting. So you have to think about how are we going to build something where our friends are sustainable, our network is sustainable. And eventually, you can work towards winning that electoral game. But you're so far outnumbered that really the focus is on – 
there's words that, you know, that sometimes the best defense is offense. That's true here. And uh, I kind of focused a lot on building that, on building those institutions, those micro institutions, small groups of people who can coordinate on business, who can coordinate on different ideas and build a parallel economy of sorts to uh, the mainstream so that people can know that they're not going to get canceled. They're not going to get fired from their job because they expressed support for the wrong presidential candidate. They're not going to end up having their life destroyed because uh, the government decided that it didn't like their particular line of work on a given day. And these are these things might sound weird to someone who doesn't live in a deep blue area. But when you're in a, essentially a one-party state, the democracy doesn't matter. People talk about the values of democracy and the idea of represent. You have no representative government. The government does not represent you there, and it's it's a it's a changed mindset of how you operate under that reality. Yeah, you could say the same thing exactly for DC. You have one party state. It's all the big debate was who's the Democrat nominee for for mayor. It was was going to be Muriel Bowser. Or- Oh, yeah. Somebody else, and it was about it was a race to the bottom. It was like who could appeal to the most progressive, you know, active voter base in DC, and of course, Mayor Bowser to get reelected. I'd say, but. I'd say you, you, I wouldn't say that it's a total lost cause in DC because you have the Republican establishment True. is here, and even if you can't rely on these people, <laughs> uh, you can still know that okay, so they're not going to actively try to destroy your life. You can kind of rely on them for some support. There's yeah. Republican bars, there's Republican clubs, um, and you also have the luxury of having a red state right next to you. I mean, in, in order to get to Republican territory in uh, New York City, I mean, Suffolk County, Long Island is awesome. But uh, other than that, which Staten even Staten Island maybe Staten Island is has a reputation of being the most conservative borough, but it only goes by about fifty four percent, and they're represented by Nicole Maliotakis, who is not always with the with the issues on it. I mean, don't get me wrong, Nicole Maliotakis has a lot of virtue about her; she's very well liked. Um, but I would consider her in the establishment camp at okay. this point. So uh, what I'm talking about is where the laws apply because even mm-hmm. if you have red Staten Island, you, you're still in blue New York City. So where, where, are, where are you going? Where, where are you going where the nearest red occupied state is? And to, to be frank, it's the same state that's next to D.C. You have to go all the way down to Virginia. You or, see Maryland kind you, of. <sighs> Maryland is I mean I mean you you <laughs> have the Hogan. you have those Republican governors yeah. who win in like Vermont or Massachusetts and we love them they're great they're better than a democrat but they're not going to give you the same kind of support and backing um I visited Alabama for the first time about a year ago around this time and it was striking because it was the first time in my life that I had been in a state where everyone supports you essentially and where you're in the majority and you control where you can talk about things like communicating with your local government which is just not something that you can do <laughs> in Manhattan they're not going to listen to you they don't care what you think i mean yeah same thing was said i think when um dc was surrounded by red state for that brief while mm-hmm. you know we had yunkin just got elected in virginia which doing a great job we we love governor yunkin mm-hmm. Of course, you had Larry Hogan, one of those you know blue state Republican governors like Phil Scott in Vermont, Sununu in, in in New Hampshire. But it was still funny because you saw a lot of the the I think the conservative memes on Twitter that were just like DC, we have you surrounded, and 
I just said to them, I wish, I wish DC mm. would be uh, a red city. We're finally seeing some red cities emerge, like Miami, you could argue, is turning the corner. I think there's potential for some cities to, to become more, at least, purple. I look at Houston, and Harris County is not as blue as, as many people would think. So I think that there is certainly opportunities for the Republican Party to grow and conservatives to grow in, in urban areas, especially as the coalition becomes a bit more diverse, as we're seeing. We saw the highest share of the minority vote go to President Trump in 2020. You saw Hispanic vote surge, African-American vote surge. Um, and I think that, that that's going to carry on as people look at, you know, I know I know I'm known in this podcast for talking a lot about Texas. It's my own state. But just look at South Texas, as I always say, look at the trends in those districts. And there's still some disconnect there among you know, the Republican Party and then, of course, President Trump and those Hispanic voters, because you have people who vote for Henry Cuellar religiously, but then they voted for President Trump. And I think in the, in the cities, that's less of the case. They vote, I think, down the ticket. You give them a ticket, they'll probably vote blue. You know, president, Senate, mayor, congressman, you name it. And I think that we need to start breaking that, even if it means at the congressional level. I mean, we saw in your home state, we saw Lee Zeldin kind of crack that a little bit. Yes, we did. We were closer than Michigan. Yeah. We were closer than Insane. Pennsylvania. We were within five points with Lee Zeldin. And that is that is something that I think is very important to learn if you want to approach people in blue cities. Because this is – and this is something that I've realized. At this point, I've lived in New York continuously for five years. I grew up in Long Island, so I know the environment there. The Democrats have the power and they have a mindset that they will always have the power. Um, but in the last election, I mean New York was purple. I mean yeah. there, were, there were polls showing Zeldin ahead and people are furious. In New York because you hear, for example, my, organi my organization or the organization I work for, the New York Young Republican Club, uh, they get flack because, uh, for example, at our gala, people were using rhetoric that was, you know, we want saying things like, you know, in terms of politics, like we want total war. We want to take it to the streets and protest and be able to kind of show people where there's this idea of anger. But it's it's working. <laughs> that's that's my first argument. It works. And second is that um, and, and second is that it's reflecting a reality that I mean you don't see it because we're facing such an uphill battle. But when you're when you talk to the average conservative in in New in New York City, you you will have people from other parts of the country go now come on now come on there we need to have some kind of decency coming out here from uh, you Northerners you need to learn. How to how to behave, and and meanwhile we're going like, okay, um, that's fine. So let's go to the story of you know a middle class New York family. You have the father who lost his job because of a, of a vaccine mandate, or was forced to take experimental drugs in order to remain in his job. If the job even exists because the economy is crashing and stores are closing left and right because they won't stop being looted, uh, there was a scandal earlier this year where Alvin Bragg, uh, the uh, who uh, basically decriminalized assault to an extent. And to, and to some extent, I mean you can just – in New York, you can – I don't do this. But you can just go into stores and steal things. It's like California. Yeah, nobody will do anything. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen it where I had a friend who he was uh, he was up in northern Manhattan, which is um, a little bit higher crime than the rest of Manhattan. And Manhattan's the, the, the cleanest borough in terms of crime. 
And he was saying he was in a store and he went to buy toothpaste. And he goes to the front of the store and behind him there's like eight guys clothed all in black and they're like putting things in garbage bags and they're running out of the store. And he just holds up the toothpaste. He goes, why Why would I pay for this? And now you're seeing, for example, the Dwayne Reed, which is our equivalent of Walgreens. Uh, they're closing. They're even closing on the Upper East Side because they're facing too much shrinkage in terms of their inventory, uh, which is a euphemism for things that are stolen. And – so the father has lost his job. Uh, then you have the then you have the mother who has to worry about crime, about people breaking into her home. Um, I mean, there was a headline where even Lee Zeldin, who lives in a relatively affluent neighborhood, there was a gang shootout mm-hmm. on, on his front lawn. Yeah, while the daughters were in the house. So now you have the mother who has to. Uh, who has to constantly worry about that if they're traditional stay-at-home mother. If they go into work, if if they're going into work, well, they also have to worry about all the same things as the father. I partition them just to – not to reinforce gender roles. I do it to (laughs) show – I know I'm in Georgetown. I have to be progressive. Um, (laughs) But uh, I do it to kind of show the different perspectives here of the the home and then the work Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of – uh, even and this is this is bipartisan, by the way. I haven't even touched on. Notice, I haven't touched on if you're a Republican, the additional difficulties of that, and or if you don't subscribe to the party, the Democratic Party, if you don't subscribe to the will of the party, and so you have the mother and the father. I've described their difficulties, and you know they can't afford anything because inflation is through the roof. Uh, you you go to a store and you try to buy eggs. It's eight dollars. You try to go and get some gas. It was five dollars a gallon. It's come down a little bit. So now you have to think about even driving to work or anywhere. Uh, your children can't play outside because of the crime problem. And when they can go somewhere, they go to school. And you have to worry about whether your teacher is trying to groom your children, which is. Whether you're going to have – I mean I, I, I hate to trot it out because it's a horse that's been beaten to death. But I mean drag queen story hour. I mean it, 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 where did this come from? Who asked for this? But <laughs> but this is – so this is, this is something where it's just – it's how the world works now in New York. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring up these examples is just to show that it's – you know you talk about us northerners. Be nice. Be polite. But – then you live through that and it sucks. It's really bad and it there's nothing you can do about it. There's that sense of powerlessness. You try to play by the rules. You try to do what you can and you're just smacked down. So it goes, OK, now, now we need to be a little rude because we won't give you decency because you're not going to give us decency. It's that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, going off of that. Holy Zeldin story. I mean, he had what's another attack on him on when he was on stage. Somebody tried to throw, oh yeah, stab him or yeah. You get you get a lot of um, talk in, in especially southern states that are like, oh, we don't want to become like a New York or California in particular <laughs> is, is good fodder. I mean, in, in Texas, we always say, don't California my Texas because when we think of California, mm-hmm. we think of the homelessness, the crime, the crazy you know stuff that they do in their schools. We saw Virginia flip. On that issue alone, I mean, Youngkinville had a very, I would say, slimmer campaign to Zeldin in the sense that he knew how to appeal to that family that you just outlined. Mm-hmm. 
saying, especially mothers and, and fathers, the parents. So I went to a Yunkin rally. I campaigned for Governor Yunkin, uh, well, then candidate Yunkin at the time. But half the signs at every on the street, you know, in the yard signs at the rally were all parents for Yunkin. They didn't just say Yunkin governor, like the generic ones. They said parents for Yunkin. And I think that that shows where the Republican Party needs to go. And I think that that's what New York is showing. That's what the the suburban vote and even the urban vote is showing. Like the rural the rural vote's going to be behind you. I mean, they're the most socially conservative parts of the country. But to appeal to those urban voters and saying, "Hey, like look what's going on in your kid's school. If you're against this, vote for us." I'll push back on that a little bit because in my experience, when I go to the rural areas, the reason I brought up the stereotypical rural southerner is because they don't they don't get it. Because they think, oh, well, we just see you being angry and hostile. And it's the, well, you have to be because mm. at this point there's a sense of urgency that we need that we're not seeing in our national Republican representatives. They need to have more urgency about this message is that, no, this is, this is not up for debate. This is the lives of our children and the security of our families and the stability of our jobs. Mm. And – this is this is not a talking point. This is not something for an ad. This this is real people, and things matter here. And I hate to, I hate to sound like a like a like a Democrat saying that, but sometimes the Republican elite does need to learn that lesson. Yeah, like I know a lot of people say, oh, they have to go to the to the rural parts of the country. And we always say Democrats need to know what it's like to live a rural lifestyle. <laughs> but I think as well, I agree that it needs to go both ways. That you know the rural communities, which we love them, they vote. You know, ninety percent Trump or ninety percent Republican, but again, you're exactly right. They do need to have that sense of urgency. That you know, looking even at the last midterms, like there was, the strategy needs certainly there's room for improvement. Some states had great strategy. New York, I highlight, is one of the ones that we had a good strategy. I'd say Virginia is another one, and Florida is another one. Texas, I'd also say, is another one. Those are I would say the four or five. Four states, yeah, that I would really highlight went well for Republicans, whereas the Midwest was the disaster. Um, yeah. So, so I think that there's a lot to learn for the for the RNC to learn. I mean, now Ronna McDaniel got elected to her fourth term. I hope that she learns those lessons and applies them to 24, where we can win. If if not, you know, all chambers of Congress, fingers crossed, we have the map yep. for the Senate to do it, but. It's a matter of applying the, those lessons, and I hope that they learn the right lessons. After the Yunkin election, you know, we had a watch party here at Georgetown with the, the 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 school of politics, the Institute of Politics and Public Service. We call it geopolitics. We had a watch party, and um, the director of the Politics Institute, who was ironically worked at the DNC, he was so he he's he's very much on one side of the aisle, but he said. That in all likelihood, the DNC and the RNC will take the wrong lessons out of Virginia, no matter what happens. And I think to an extent, Republicans didn't. They, I think that they understood that there is a change, that parents are the future of the party, you know, in a sense. That's how you grow the tent. That's how Loudoun County went back to being within close to within 10 points. That's how you flip back the state that everybody said was gone for Republicans. You almost flip New Jersey, right, with Jack Cittarelli. If the threat is there. If, yeah, exactly. Because you see New York, these northeastern states. Uh, an example that I can give to counter that almost is Arizona. You have Kerry Lake and Blake Masters. Yeah. Now, I don't know if Blake Masters could have won in New York, but if Kerry Lake ran on the platform that she did and she ran in New York instead of Arizona, I think she would have won. Really? Because she – whenever I speak to people in New York, I mean even – 
moderates in New York when I speak to when I speak to them. And, and then I mentioned Carrie Lake. They like Carrie Lake because Carrie Lake is appealing to. If you look, her message was very Trumpian. It was mm -hmm. very alarmist. It was focusing on this, uh, focusing on this immediate threat to your livelihood and well-being. Immigration was a big one. Well, immigration is the one thing in New York that isn't an immediate yeah. issue, that's I think, the, ironically enough. That's where you have to kind of change because she was like, I'm going to declare uh, – uh, uh, I'm going to issue declaration of invasion at the border and that, of course that resonates in Arizona. Maybe it Texas, does. But yeah, New York I would agree is not the biggest thing unless you dump all the illegal immigrants there and force them. I think um, somebody was saying this. I will not take credits on an original idea. Uh, said that if, if we dump all the illegal immigrants in New York City and pressure them to get rid of the sanctuary city status, that would be considered a big win and maybe put immigration on the map in New York. But I digress. I will say it's terrible. It's terrible for us. We don't we don't mm. like it. But it, it makes it makes yeah. it makes a point. It does. It is a very. I mean, the busing Str flying them up to Martha's Vineyard, yeah. flying them up to flying. Uh, People who come across the border into Martha's Vineyard, I think that's a. I mean, I think that that's a strong message to send. I mean, I know uh, Greg Abbott and DeSantis. Uh, they were they were good to consider that. Um, for uh, when I bring up the when I bring up the Cary Lake bit, though, for Arizona, I mean, the reason why I say it is not to say specific issues. It's just the general, just understanding what applies directly to people's lives. I mean, when you have someone go up and. Uh, when you say, oh, well, uh, we're going to win over the Hispanic vote and we want to win over this. Uh, that that was a line that stuck me when Trump was announcing his 2024 run because objectively speaking, yes, you want to go after the Hispanic vote. You want to be able to expand a vote. You want more votes. That's how, democracy, that, that, that's how our republic works. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to catch myself because <laughs> we've been subverted into a democracy. We're not mm -hmm. supposed to be. We're supposed to be a republic. But – then that catches me. But why on earth would you say that to the entire population? I, you, you're interested in going after the Hispanic vote. What appeal does that have to anybody, even Hispanics? If if somebody goes up to someone and they're Hispanic and they go, "Well, I'm interested in winning over the Hispanic vote," that, that means that, that it's a nothing. It yeah. means nothing. If you're trying to say I'm interested in improving the lives of Hispanic communities by that are on the border. By emphasizing border security and making sure that drugs do not go into these communities, that crime is kept down and people are able to live a stable life. Okay, now that's something that that's a good that that could be a good message. Mm -hmm. Granted, I, I don't live on the I don't I will admit that I'm not literate on the issues that are uh, major at the border crossings because mm -hmm. I, I I live as far away from <laughs> as I think you can get in the United States, but. You get the point. Yeah, no, Carrie Lake's campaign, I think, was very well run. Um, up, I think to the week before election, election day, when she, you know, that's that's another hot topic. But I think that you know, Carrie Lake had the personality. I think to win, she'd be a great governor. I, I still stand by that. Mm -hmm. I know in our uh, our episode that we did about the Arizona, like previewing the Arizona elections, I was gushing over Carrie Lake, over how great of a candidate I think she 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 was, and she still is. I think she's an excellent person that could definitely be used in the future of the Republican Party. And I wish her all the best. I have nothing but but love for her. But let's let's move on to the more Catholic uh, aspect of sure. I think the, the conservative or Republican coalition per se. And Catholics have been a more purplish voting bloc than let's say evangelical Protestants. Evangelicals have been have been seen as a very strong 
Republican voter block. Whenever whenever anybody talks about the Christian right, they're talking about evangelicals. I mean, Mike Pence, the former vice president, was an evangelical himself. You have many Republican senators who are evangelicals. Don't see many Catholics. Um, and I know we saw in 2020 – According to CNN, CNN and Fox News disagree over what the Catholic vote was. CNN say Biden got 52 percent, Trump got 47. But Fox News said Trump actually got 50 percent and Biden got 49 percent. Now, again, it's important to note Biden is on paper a Catholic, so that could inflate his numbers with Catholics. And in the midterms, we did see, according to Fox as well, that Republicans actually won the Catholic vote by 10 points, so 54 to 44 why is this the case and how can the GOP lure those Catholics that maybe are, you know, have social conservative views on things like abortion, same-sex marriage, but they they feel like they're legislating the morality if they if they vote Republican? I'd say it's a couple of things. Uh, first off is uh, Catholics are a dormant political bloc. I, w- I will say that in my experience. I mean, as, as the chairman of the Catholic caucus, I would try to I would go around New York City, try to find priests who'd be willing to speak publicly. And if you're looking for a rabbi, for example, a member of the Jewish community, they will all come out and speak immediately. I mean, at least in my experience, I've ne- we've never in our club had trouble finding a rabbi to give an invocation or speak to the club. In terms of Catholic priests, I had to go all the way to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I had to find a priest that was already significantly controversial in the area in order to have somebody who was willing to speak to our club about Catholic layman's activism. And the there are several reasons for that. Um, one of them is that the church likes to – there's a saying that uh, the world measures its time in minutes and the church moves according to centuries. And the church is still resolving issues that were brought up in the 60s right now. I mean that's the that's the TLM debate, the traditional Latin mass debate. And it is a reflection of a bit of a larger divide, uh, divide in the church. And this is something that I am seeing in Catholic circles is that you have you have two really branches, two emphases of Catholicism. I mean, I, I, this might be a bit biased. I'm firmly on one side. There is the side that believes that the church is timeless, that it's socially conservative, uh, and conservative not just in a sense of, oh, we're on the political right. Like that, That's not what that means. We align with the political right, but it's not, you know, Republican town. What it is, is a rejection fundamentally of modern liberalism and a return to a scholastic, dare I say, more rational approach to the world that's rooted in the logos of reason and the truth of Christ. And it's rooted in an idea that, well, facts don't care about your feelings. That's the modern simplified expression of it. But it's rooted in a broader sense that we are part of something that is far larger and we are here to do the will of God. We uh, surrender ourselves to God to become something greater. And then there is another branch of Catholicism, which is it's, – it's kind of another emphasis. And most churches exist somewhere on a spectrum between one and the other. And it focuses a lot more on Catholic social teaching, which the emphasis is between 
the liturgy and the worship of God the divine and then coming down to earth and helping the poor and living as Christ would on earth. And that side isn't necessarily bad either. They tend to align more with the uh, more progressive version of the left because they emphasize empathy. They emphasize, they emphasize helping the needy, helping the poor, addressing these sorts of social issues that Republicans are sometimes want to ignore. Like I said, they like having their head in the clouds with economic issues. They don't like going onto the ground. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that either. But the problem is that you have emphases on both. And I think each side has something to learn from the other. But as regards the left-wing branch, the more social – uh, the more the more of a social welfare branch. What, what's happened with it is there's been a confusion between the idea of avoiding offense and the idea of love. If you love somebody and you believe in the truth of Christ, you will want them to save their soul and you'll want the world to function according to the commands of God because it will lead to the best outcome and the most virtuous nation that we could possibly find. But instead, what you see with these people is the emphasis on being nice. It was a very wise man. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but he I know who he is. He currently works at Newsmax, um, who once said to me – he was an old religion teacher and he once said to me something very smart, is that you can be kind or you can be nice. Somebody who's nice makes other people feel good and emphasizes – making other people feel good and emphasizes the maximization of their pleasure. A kind person will sometimes act in ways that cause other people pain, but he will always act in ways that are in the best interest of the person he's speaking to. The Catholic Church on the right is kind. The Catholic Church on the left is nice. And that is really the divide that we're seeing. So how do we wake them up? That's the problem I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, and kind of segueing in off of that, what what should be the key issues that Catholics should be should be voting on? Should it be the more compassionate economics, you could say, or do you think that the because I'm thinking about it in also my personal context? I grew up in Portugal, uh, and a lot of the priests there urge you to vote for the conservative side of politics, the right. Uh, it used to be this uh, more Christian Democratic Party, but they're kind of waning off. And so there's a huge fight among the some the right-wing parties now of who's going to get kind of like the the church endorsement per se. Who's <laughs> going to get the priests out there and their homilies saying, you you know what? You know, these are the problems facing the country, and this is the party, this is the leader to fix that that those problems. And I think that that's that shows that at least in Europe, I think a lot of the churches are on that more kind side than they are on the more um, nice side. I think in the U.S. you see more of that divide. Maybe it's because the U.S. is a more you could say secular country than than a lot of European countries. Portugal has disclaimers eighty one percent Catholic, so I mean there there is that kind of um, homogeneity in that uh, that 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 regard in terms of religion. It's a very Christian country. Christian values still play a huge role in, in Portuguese culture. And the U.S., of course, is a very diverse country. Uh, I think Christians are now going to be under 50% of the population. If not, we're That's not there. true. That's oh, not true. Are we no. still over 50? We, we're substantial. If you're talking about Protestants, 
yes, you're under 50. Uh, if you're talking about Christians in general, and th this is a common misconception, is because people look at numbers and they see a rise in unaffiliated. They are not part of any particular religious denomination. That's not atheist. It's not the great rise of atheism. There are very few actual atheists in the country and most numbers, if you start asking people questions, you're not really going to get over 5 percent tops. What you're seeing is not the great rise of atheism. What you're seeing is people who are disillusioned with the establishment that exists. And I think that that's – sorry to interrupt you, but I, th I think that that's an important misconception to count. Mm -hmm. But yes, the nation is still majority Christian and will continue to be for a while, even if it's not the sort of Christian that we're used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think Catholics are what, 20-something percent? 20 – somewhere between 20 and 24. Yeah, depending that, on sounds about, that sounds about right. But I think in the Northeast, it's a little more inflated. On Long Island, where I grew up, it's half. Yeah, that sounds about, about right. But going back to my my question about what are the what issues should Catholics do you think be be paying attention to in any given election cycle? How controversial am I allowed to be on this show? And you're you're where we have the First Amendment, so speak whatever. Well, I'll start with I'll start with the small and sure. then go to the big. One of the most disturbing things that I see sometimes, and people will disagree with me on this, is the church is pro life. That's not, a controversial, that's not a controversial statement. The Catholic Church as an institution believes that life begins at conception and supports the banning of abortion so long as a mother's life is not at risk. If a mother's life is at risk, it's actually the Catholic position to allow it in that case. Mm -hmm. So if you believe that – if you believe that and you're willing to say that, OK, fair. But that means you're willing to say that there are hundreds of thousands of people being slaughtered every year, babies, that there are thousands per day. That's a, that's, a, that's a lot of people. That's a large tragedy that over the past 50 years, 60 million people, some odd people in the United States alone have been killed and the majority of those uh, – I actually don't know if it's a majority. Uh, I know that the vastly outrepresented in that is people of color. So it's also racist on top of that. And that is a horrendous tragedy. Now, if you believe that, put your money where your mouth is. Don't say, oh, well, this is the great tragedy of our time. We believe that 10 percent of our youth are being – essentially driven to a point where they're unable to understand themselves sexually in their entire life or you're – don't be driven to a point where you know tens of thousands of babies are being slaughtered a month and then say, you know how we're going to address this? We're going to have a picnic with flowers and candy and we're going to talk about these horrendous tragedies that are happening with little tiny you know, candies and flowers and, and uh, whatever you'd like to do and little tiny flyers and we'll play happy music and we'll all be smiling and then we'll all go home and absolutely nothing has changed. If that is your belief, if you're, if you're somebody who's able to say that and then you go out and you just kind of happily dance around and you know, you're smiling as you're saying that this is going on. This is not something that you believe in your heart and I'm, I'm sorry. I just I, – I, I look at that and I go, what? 
Like, did you realize how unsettling that is? And I, I and a lot of the people who are pro-choice, they see that and they think it's just you know crazy religious nuts who are trying to push an agenda that they that is all about control. And I think, frankly, they're reasonable to believe that because that's the way these people are acting. That's my first piece of advice for Catholics who are looking to wake people up. Put your money where your mouth is. Act according to your own beliefs. If you think that hookup culture is terrible and you think that it's destroying our society, why are you encouraging it? If you think that drugs numb your mind and darken your mind to God, why are you encouraging people to do them? That's the first thing is the crushing of this internal hypocrisy and it really needs to be addressed. Um, th that's, that's what I see when I see the left-wing church and they go, you know, I understand that according to my own views, the there are millions of children, millions of children being killed around the world and civilization is essentially being twisted and perverted. But Trump said some very mean things on Twitter about Rosie O'Donnell. And when he was on a bus in, in uh, Hollywood somewhere, he uh, made some crude jokes and that's just not something fit for our country. So we're going to opt for the mass slaughter of our civilization. It's – I'm sorry, what? I, I mean when you, when you think about it, the, the position is patently absurd. The reason I asked how controversial I'm able to be is because I know that, that those remarks are going to get people upset and I'm sorry for saying. <laughs> but um, on a broader level, what does the Catholic Church need to focus on? Because it's not just abortion. It's not just any of these social issues. What the church needs to focus on is that Western civilization generally – and when I say the Western civilization, that's not – people will think, oh, that's a dog whistle. It means Europe. No, it doesn't. Western civilization is the civilization of the Catholic Church. It includes anybody who adopts the traditions of the church and continues the traditions to uphold civilization that the church promotes. And that needs to be the main issue that is pushed by the church is the idea of we're seeing the dissolution of communities. Children are growing up with no family, with no guidance. People talk about a right to this, a right to that. What about a right to be loved by your parents? Or what about a right to a stable community where you're able to live among sane people or a right to know God? And I understand those are abstract ideas, but those are the things that need to drive the Catholic vote because right now they're focused on these single hot-button issues like abortion. And that – the conclusions about abortion will never be resolved in modern American politics until they address the issues that I just said because the first principles of abortion are never going to be resolved. It's always going to be, oh, a human right, a clump of cells on one side and it's always going to be personhood and murder on the other side and you're never going to make up your mind. What will happen – is you need to get people to understand the worldview that leads to each side and then persuade them. It's a much more fundamental project that Catholics need to undertake than just what will win the next election. Yeah, and the all the hot topic issues you also mentioned, like <laughs> the culture. I know people on this campus who believe those exact things. And you know, we hosted the Cardinal O'Connor Conference on Life 
I think, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I think the response was, because there were pro-choice protesters outside who were, you know, yelling and, you know, trying to intimidate the people. And credit to them, by the way, because they believe that the state is trying to seize control of their uterus and they're acting like the state is trying to seize control of their uterus. So credit to the pro – give the pro-choicers credit where it's due. They're acting on what they care about. They're putting their money where their mouth is and the Catholics need to do the same. I agree. And if this is, of course, the day after the March for Life when we when the OCC is hosted here at Georgetown. And one thing that I could tell a huge difference is while they were, you know, yelling and they were, you know, upset, clearly, a lot of the pro-lifers were, you know, it was a moment it was a movement of love. I think everybody there had smiles on their faces. You know, I volunteered for the conference and to, to see people come in from across the country. You know, we had uh, some excellent speakers come and to just see people, you know, there was no hatred and there were groups there that were were progressive. Um, There were groups there that were conservative. There were groups there that were Catholic uh, because it was a Catholic university, at least on paper. There was it was it was it was a movement of love. And I could really feel that nobody was there. You know, I spoke to people who are, you know, from the progressive groups and we, 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 we had a great conversation and I feel, and I resonate a lot with them because they must have the same struggle within their political movement, you could say, as the conservatives do on a college campus. Cause you're always, you're the minority, you're always shunned. You know, they, you know, again, those same arguments that the pro-choicers use, like, oh, get, you know, ban, you know, get your the government out of, hmm. out of my uterus. They probably say the same things to them. And while we may not exactly have the same reasoning for why we have the same position, we still have that same position and we stand united in that position to get, you know, pat, you know, the country culture in this country on, on the right track. So I think that that's another key, key distinction to make between, um, you know, the people who are like, Oh, I'm personally pro-life, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think the government should regulate it. Or That position makes no sense unless you believe that your views are false. <laughs> Yeah. It's a libertarian view that I know. I, I, I push back against that because if, if you believe that that's murder, then you believe that person has a right to life. And based on the non-aggression people, uh, the, the non-aggression principle, the society has an obligation to respect the non-aggression yeah. principle in that sense. Uh, to add on to that before, I know where I said before, you know, the happy picnic going pro-lifer who goes out and, you know, happily, you know, there's millions of people dying. <laughs> like, no, like so. But what but there is a fine line to be drawn. Hatred, hate, pure hate for hate's sake, the destructive impulse, that is a sin. Mm -hmm. That is a sin. The only thing that it is okay to hate is pure evil and pure – and when I say pure evil, I don't talk about Nancy Pelosi. I talk about primordial demonic evil that has no redemption. Mm -hmm. But there is a line to be drawn, I think, between love, being loving and being flippant. What I described was being flippant. It's somebody who they do the pro-life thing because it's their personality and it's who they choose to brand themselves as. Um, And they see it as an opportunity to get people together uh, and like celebrate stuff. If you're somebody who has it as a movement of love, and I think that it is very significant. Thank you for bringing that up. Is that if you have somebody who's moved and no, I'm here seriously and I'm here because I believe in something, not because – you know, I want to use this as a social event, but because I love people and I see the people around me who also believe that all people have inherent worth. And those people are not motivated by hate of the pro-choice movement. 
Those people are motivated by the love of the people who they want to save, of their country, of their countrymen. And I think that there's something very important about that. Yeah, and I, uh, when the pro-life caucus or elements of the pro-life caucus came to the March for Life, and of course, um, Majority Leader C. Scalise, you know, gave his speech. And of course, Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey also gave a speech. Uh, and I know Ann Wagner had her Born Alive Act passed through the House of Representatives. To, I think the first significant pro-life legislation that's gone through Congress in decades. Mm-hmm. So I think that th- that's an important step that I think Republican party leaders and party members are recognizing the, 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 the severity of this issue and they want to actually take steps to address it. And I know a lot of people say, oh, but we don't want to politicize the pro-life movement. And I agree. Keep you know the Republican Party and the pro-life movement separately. Of course, Republican elected officials can be pro-life. It's not to say don't be pro-life, obviously. You're not the ones but, politicizing it. It's the fact that Democrats have made it a litmus test true. where you can't be a Democrat and be pro-life. Yeah. I mean one Democrat, I believe, voted for the Born Alive Act and it was Henry Cuellar, who I mentioned you know, before. There were My caucus put out Democrats a tweet supporting him. Yeah. Saying congratulations, you are the one Democrat with a soul. Yeah, we're voting for the born alive. If you have a at that point, that's not even an abortion. You have a person that is born. You you have a person who was born. Like that's just do do you murder the baby? Mm-hmm. Do you murder the baby? And it only one Democrat voted. I don't murder the baby. Yeah, I mean, and you had what, what? Congresswoman Hillary Shulton of of Michigan, Democrat from Michigan. She kind of tried to give the Christian argument why we should be pro uh, abortion, which I thought was was in, it was an interesting argument. And I know I, that popped up on social media and all, all the, like the Catholic vote, I think is the organization um was denouncing her and saying this is not this this is not true. There are so many Catholics who try to push that's another thing too is there's people who take the word Catholic and they put and they slap it onto something because they think that it is because they want to say, oh, it's Catholics to do, to do blank. At this point, you have you have Catholics for Choice is the organization mm-hmm. I like to bring up. I told you a bit about them yesterday where uh, I did a little bit of research into the people backing Catholics for Choice. And without going into detail, it's not necessarily Catholics. It's not necessarily a Catholic organization. These are people outside of the Catholic faith who are using the word Catholic. And this was – this is important by the way. This was a campaign that was waged because people realized – people who wanted to legalize abortion in, starting in the 50s realized – and this can also be included by the way with, with uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, which supported efforts to legalize abortion as a way of keeping numbers of Catholics and other races of people down. Not that Catholics are a race. Anyway though, whenever – and notice this. Once I say this, you'll see it in the news. Whenever you see pro-life in the news, they will always say Catholic, Catholic pro-life. The, 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 the association is built. Whenever they say pro-choice, you don't see the religious denomination mentioned. Why is that? Is it because they're, because they're trying to paint it like the Catholics are the only ones that are pro-life? And that's why, as the, the the Catholic Caucus, we don't, with one exception, with the one with one exception, and that was when it was a, a more about crime than about abortion. Uh, the Catholic Caucus that I lead doesn't spearhead pro life events itself. We'll back people, 
who do pro-life events. But we've never actually had an event that was explicitly a pro-life event. The reason being, we don't want to play into that narrative. Um, that was something that was a discussion that was had internally with some people is they go, you're the Catholics. You need to be pro-life. You need to be the people who are spearheading the social efforts. And we go, no, you do it. Why? Because it's always pinned on the Catholics. So if the Catholics do it and everyone just stands and looks at them, that doesn't do anything. You want the, you want the social conservative vote? Embrace their issues. And then the social conservatives will come to your support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's – I think that that's – I saw in the news when um, there were students who went into one of the Smithsonian museums in, in D here in D.C. Mm -hmm. who had pro-life beanies from the March for Life and they mm -hmm. were kicked out. And the headline was pro Catholic pro-life students kicked out of Smithsonian. So I think that's exactly right. They're trying to add that. Label And I do think it kind of stems from the anti-Catholic bias that has previously historically existed in this country. I mean, you saw President Kennedy had to fight tooth and nail to disprove that Catholics were some evil, you know, he would listen to Vatican orders over the American people. That was the whole debate there. And he had to normalize Catholic, uh, Catholic presidency. And notice that the debate about whenever someone's slamming Christians in the media, unless you're going after those crazy evangelicals who worshipped George Bush – in that one film, I forget the name of the movie. There's one that came out in around 2006. Um, there's – it's always either the Mormons because – well, or you look at the Catholics. Notice it's – very rarely is it actually the Protestants that are mentioned. It's, it's, like, there, it's like there's one group that's running a lot of things and they have this internalized hatred of Catholics and when they go after the whole Christian group, they don't go after Christians specifically. It's always – you notice the debate is over Catholics, Catholic power, Catholic control, Catholics have a theocracy. Catholics are a fifth of the country. Mm -hmm. We aren't a religious – we aren't a religious majority by any means and the fact that the debate – which by the way, that, that's something of a witness from God I think. The fact that the debate centers around Catholics so much I think – is it speaks to how central the truth of Catholicism is because when you get to the crux of it, the debate of modern society is between truth and your truth. Mm -hmm. And your truth, speak your truth, your truth is what you define it to be. It's a, de it's a declaration of independence from sanity. The truth is the truth of Christ. That's what I believe. I don't know how many other people believe it, but I believe it. And I think that that will just continue to be witnessed as time goes on. And that's actually a very good uh, mm -hmm. lead up to, to one final question I have for you. And I know this is going to be the most controversial or hot topic. Uh, I've question. touched on some controversial things. <laughs> yeah, here, here, here's one that I know a lot of uh, people on the left are going to, 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 to hear and be like, oh, my gosh, this is this is, you know, like, we were just talking about the Catholic mm -hmm. theocracy is coming. But in your opinion, what would be the ideal relationship between the church and the state? Separation of church and state stems from a letter that was sent by Thomas Jefferson. There was a there was a clip from uh, Lauren Boebert. When she was speaking at the Student Action Summit, I had the 
benefit of being there where she said it came from a stinking letter. That's true. It came from a letter that was written by Thomas Jefferson who was a fan of the, the atheistic French Revolution that tried to destroy the Catholic Church, persecuted it and replaced uh, the Virgin Mary with the reason goddess Athena. Now that's fun. So what does the First Amendment actually say? You have – you will have no establishment of religion and you will not prohibit the free exercise thereof. OK. So you will not prohibit the free exercise of religion. OK. Good. We understand. You will not prohibit people from practicing their faith. What about the establishment clause? And that's what these groups like the ACLU and the Freedom from Religion Foundation uh, use to go after the Catholic Church. The establishment of religion was referred to – was referring to the state church, which existed at the time of the American Revolution. It was, it was the, the British have it. The, 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 there's the Church of England that exists, the Anglican Church, and that is an establishment of religion. The meaning of establishment of religion has come so far off course that any mention of religion in any way in a public space is seen as an establishment of religion. Now, this narrative was pushed by religious minorities through the 20th century. M many of the same groups also that were pushing the abortion narrative, again, targeting Catholics in order to force the Christians out of the public sphere so that a bigger share of the pie could be obtained. And we see how far this has been twisted by how many hoops you have to jump through if you do anything religious in a public space. And, and now disturbingly, it's become a mainstream view where you almost want to have the state-enforced atheism, which, like I said, small minority of the population. Most views do not respect that. How do you allow the free exercise of religion if you prohibit it from every public space or any space that is supported in any way by any public funds whatsoever? How do you allow that? So what are my beliefs about separation of church and state? I do not believe in separation of church and state. I believe that the state should not have an established church. But I believe that the church exists for a reason. Religion is not a matter of opinion. Religion is a matter of truth. Remember that. If religion is just a matter of opinion, then it doesn't matter and we shouldn't have it in the constitution, but it isn't. Objectively speaking, a vast majority of Americans do believe in religion. And what do you believe in when you believe in religion? It's not an opinion. It's a matter of truth. And the fact is that there is a truth. There is something beyond a material realm. Most people will agree on that in the United States. And if that is the case, then you can't just say, oh, well, the, the purpose of the church is to just exist within the church and not do anything else. No, the purpose of the church is to inform the people about virtue and about the path to truth that must be maintained. And it needs to do that by being part of the society. People need to be able to talk about God. They need to be able to acknowledge the reality that exists. By banning a public discussion of religion, you're prohibiting the nation from acknowledging something that might be a completely tangible reality. So 
Yes, I do believe that that I do believe that that is where the church comes in with, with separation of church and state. You should not. It, it's a, it's a phrase that has just been beaten to death. And what else is the role? It's what what else is the role of the church? Should the church control the state? No, but the church should inform public decision. That's something that should happen. And it's something that should help form the basis for your civilization. It's the, ba it's the basis for what everything means is your religion. And if you don't have that, if you just have this atheistic society that is enforced, it won't be able to if, – if there is a god. I will preface this with this. If there is a god and – which I believe there is, but if there is one, then not acknowledging – the implications of that reality will lead to the destruction of your people. Think about th – ponder that. If, if you have a creator and there is an objective truth and you are legally prohibited from acknowledging that truth in the operation of your state, it will be destroyed. And that is an argument that is not nearly enough heard. That's why I say the main voting issue for Catholics, the preservation of – Civilization, really. That that needs to be the foremost issue, and Catholics need to discuss among themselves how they plan to do that. It's a much deeper issue than just winning an election. I couldn't. Yeah, it's great. Well said. <laughs> and Mike, once again, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to host you. Thank here you for at having Georgetown. me. Not only to have the event, you know, um, and then to come on the podcast, but truly on behalf of everyone. At Georgetown, at the Georgetown College Republicans, we thank mm -hmm. you for all, everything you've done with us. And be sure now to follow us on all of our social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter. It's at Georgetown CR. And on Instagram, it's at Georgetown Republicans. Be sure to leave five star ratings on the podcast streaming platform of your choice. And Mike, how can they keep up with the New York Republican Club and all the work you're doing? Well, they can follow they can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, any form of social media. A couple of projects that are uh, coming up with the YRs now. If you're interested in getting involved and getting some sort of experience in government and figuring out some way that you can change the culture of this country, uh, the YRs is launching a project next week that I'm actually heading. It's going to be called Manhattan Project USA. And what that project is, is building a collection of young conservatives that continue to build a network, at first just within Albany and D.C., but eventually across the country, to preserve what really makes this country conservative. Really, it's meant to get people jobs. It's meant to get people some work experience and prevent them from being sucked into the swamp to let people know that you don't have to give up your values in order to help this country. Also, I wrote a book. It's called Invest in Independence. Totally unrelated. Uh, it's not part of the club, but I did want to plug it before we're out. It's available on Amazon, hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. So if you want to know how to build your own business and how to invest in a parallel economy, uh, that book is online now. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and thank you all for listening, and we'll see you for the next episode. God bless. God bless.